This evening's scripture comes from the book of Second Peter, chapter three, verses one through seven. Second Peter, chapter three, verses one through seven. Dear friends, this is now my second letter to you. I have written both of them as reminders to stimulate you to the wholesome thinking. I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the command given by our Lord and Savior through your apostles. First of all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming, he promised. Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens existed and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. You may be seated. Well, I'm very happy to be with you this evening, as I always am, and thank you very much for the scripture reading, for the very fine singing, and for the prayers which have been offered. And uh, very happy to study with you once again out of the greatest book in all the world, and that's our Bible. You know, of all the promises of God, every one of them have been kept. I suppose that is hard for us to realize because we make so many promises and we don't keep that many promises. We do our best, I suppose, but we don't keep that many of them. Whereas God keeps every promise. Everything that he's ever said, everything that he's ever promised, he's always kept it. No matter how far back into time God has made a promise, it always took place. God brought it about. Nehemiah reminded the children of Israel how that God kept the promise about the nation. Nehemiah chapter 9. Even though the promise he's referring to happened hundreds of years before the fact, there Nehemiah is reminding them that God fulfilled every promise he said he would give. That's Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 23. The Bible tells us that there's another promise that God has made, and that promise is the second coming of the Lord. And He's promised that He would come again. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, talks about that promise and the significance of it. You'll remember that verse. And just as it is appointed to man to die once, and after that comes judgment. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Isn't that a great verse? Hebrews chapter 9 and the verse, verse 28. Jesus is coming one great day. He first came, as the writer said, he came to deal with sin and to die on the cross for our sins. But now he'll come again. And he'll take those who belong to him to be with him forever in eternity. He'll come this time, not the one who's to be sacrificed, but as our judge and the judge of all men everywhere. To, tr- uh, to satisfy troubled hearts, Jesus in John chapter 14 talked about his second coming and the promise which he was making to come back again. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again 
and will take you to myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. The Bible is filled with passages that talk about the promise of God and the second coming of Christ. And indicative of the promises of God, we know that it will take place. That promise will happen just like all the other promises that God has made will happen and have happened. The book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 1. The passage is verse 7. Behold, he's coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him, even so, amen. Everywhere you go in the pages of the New Testament, doesn't matter where you are, there's going to be reference to the second coming of Christ. In the very beginning of the book of Acts, Acts chapter 1, about verses 9 through 11, there you have the ascension of the Lord. It's a very interesting and a unique passage, how that Jesus ascends back to heaven before them and they see, and I've often wondered, you know, just exactly how and what did they see as he transitions from a physical body to that spiritual body and goes on into heaven. And then the angels appeared, and they told uh, the witnesses as they were watching, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. It's a promise of God. And it's made for us over and over again. You could pick out any passage out of the Bible, any set of books. It might be the gospel accounts, John chapter 14. It could be history, Acts chapter 1. It could be any of the letters that we read of in the pages of the Bible. For example, 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Here's an interesting verse. Verse 22. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord come. Verse 22. Now, if you're reading an older translation, you may have reference there to the Aramaic phrase Maranatha. Now, this English Standard Version is translated Maranatha for us. Maranatha means Lord come. We're not exactly sure what it means. It's something to the effect of Lord come, Lord come quickly, something to that effect. These translators have translated our Lord come, Maranatha. Some translators and expositors have said that this was a prayer. That was a common prayer that was made in the early church, first century times, that they would be praying this particular matter. Lord, come. Some have suggested that this was a type of greeting, that they would greet one another. They would greet one another as Christian people, Maranatha, or Lord, come. And it would be on their heart and on their mind, and so when they would talk with each other, they would give each other hope that Christ is going to come one great day. It's a part of our life, and that's the way they looked upon it. Peter's describing the fact, one day, God's promised it's going to happen. And God always fulfills His promises. Christ is coming again, one great day. He says, now there is something I want to warn you about. I'm in Second Peter chapter 3. And in that particular verse, verse 13, he said, there are people like scoffers are coming. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. Scoffers are people who throw doubt on the promises of God. Now, God's made these wonderful promises, but I want you to understand 
even though you've read them from Christ and you've read them from the apostles, and God has fulfilled all of the promises that He's made. Second Peter, Peter's saying, I'm an older man now, and this is the last statement of revelation that I'm going to give you, chapter 3 of this book. Even though you know all these things, I want to warn you. Scoffers are coming. And they're going to make light of, they're going to try to throw doubt upon the fact of the second coming of Jesus Christ. And if they can do that, if they can throw doubt upon the Lord's second coming, then they think in their minds that removes them of accountability and responsibility before the Lord. If somehow Christ is not going to come, then what responsibility do I have to live any kind of Christian life? Or what accountability am I going to have in living the Christian life if there is no second coming? And I just doubt that there's going to be a second coming. For after all, the world continues to go on as it has from the very beginning. Where is the promise of His coming? We want to know about it. Scoffers then, scoffers now. When I was a younger fellow, I heard a gospel preacher say, Well, if there is an atheist anywhere, he keeps it to himself. I suppose in that day and time there weren't many atheists. I don't know. He didn't know any. But I know them today. Atheism is a very common thing today. The anti-theists would do their very best to undermine the Christian system and despise Christianity. Aristotle was one who taught his students. They were described as the peripatetic students because they would walk around from place to place, and they would use that particular word, peripatetics, in order to go from place to place. That's the way teachers taught in that day. They would travel from place to place, and the students would follow the teacher, and the teacher would be teaching along the way. Well, what did he teach his students? He taught his students that God is not going to interrupt nature, Nature's going to last forever. The world's going to last forever. And God's not going to interrupt anything like this, the flow of history. After all, the universe is eternal. Aristotle and those before him believed that matter was eternal and would always exist. The Epicureans were scoffers at the second coming of Christ. They thought that matter was indestructible. There's nothing you can do to destroy the world in which we live. It's always going to be here. And then there are some who today, in very clever ways and in clever means, have tried to convince us that God is not going to come. God is not going to hold anyone accountable. And you can really live any way that you choose or any way that you please. So our day is not unique in that there are scoffers today who try to throw doubt on the faith that we have in Christ Jesus and His second coming. There's always been those to try to throw doubt on the promise of God. But notice what Peter says in chapter 3 and beginning in verse 5. For they deliberately overlook this fact. Here's a fact they overlook. That the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water. That's reference to Genesis chapter 1. And through water by the word of God. That by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. He's talking about the pre-flood world. The world that then existed. And God destroyed it. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire. Being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. 
Now he's talking about the world that exists now. The world that exists now is not going to be destroyed by water. The world that exists now is going to be destroyed by fire. And God has made that promise. And fire is going to be what takes it out and destroys it. And it will melt along with all the works of man with great fervent heat. Now Noah worked for 120 years. He worked building that ark. And he built it according to the pattern that God had given him. And he began to preach all that time while he was working. And he was warning people about a great flood that was to come to destroy the earth. And when the time came, as you understand, Genesis chapter 6 and Genesis chapter 7, that all the animals came upon the ark which Noah prepared according to the pattern. And there the Bible says God shut the door. Verse 16. When he shut the door, that was the end of any opportunity that anyone had to go into that ark. And in verse 23, it tells us that he blotted out the earth at that time. Every wicked thing, every living thing that was upon the face of the earth. And we know that that is a fact. The second coming of the Lord is going to be similar to that. The second coming of the Lord is going to come whereby men will not have a second chance. Just as God shut the door, no one was allowed to enter after the door was shut. And Noah and his family and those animal species that were there were enhoused in the ark which Noah had prepared. And just as the flood came as a means of judgment upon wicked mankind, so God is going to come in judgment upon this world, this post-flood world, and in turn will destroy the wicked. We have an accountability before God. One of the great principles which the Bible talks about is the matter of being accountable to God, have to giving account of responsibility to Him, whether we live for Him or not live with Him. And then, in Genesis chapter 9, a covenant was made. In Genesis 9, 12 through 15, a covenant was made, and God made it with an oath that He will never again destroy the world by means of water. And here, by verse 8, Peter says, now something here I don't want you to overlook. It's an important point, but do not overlook this one fact, verse 8. That with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. Now that's not the first time we came across that kind of idea in verse 8. He's made it very clear that it does not matter when God makes a promise. It's going to happen. And God does not deal with time or live in time as we do. God created time for our benefit. And we need the element of time. But God doesn't need time. And He doesn't live in the element of time as we do. He thinks about things differently. He doesn't see these particular matters as we do. We look upon them in very chronological step by step by step. But God sees the entire picture of the universe at one time. And He knows all that can be known. And He sees all that can be seen. And a day with the Lord is like a thousand years with Him. Time really doesn't mean that much to Him. But I rather choose to think that His point in verse 8 is, even though God's not bound by time, His point in verse 8, 
God made a promise. God's going to keep the promise. It doesn't matter when he made that promise. Yesterday or a thousand years ago, God's still going to make good on the promise that he made. He says now, verse 8, I don't want you to overlook that fact. There's another point we don't need to overlook, and that's the word thief. And so let me go to that in verse 9 and verse 10. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth with the works that are done on it will be exposed. That word thief there gives us the connotation that we don't know when the hour will be. Because it's like a thief. If you examine the work and the modus operandi of a thief, he sneaks around the corner. He tries to do it by sleight of hand. He tries to take your possessions or the possessions that belong to another in a stealthy type of way without being caught. Or he comes by night and he sneaks in and he steals whatever he can and then he's off and gone. I think, though, the point about the thief with regard to the second coming of Christ is not the idea that it's going to be done without notice. The second coming will be with notice. Every eye will see him, and everyone will know that Christ has come. But the element of the thief is involved in the matter of suddenness. We don't know when it will happen, but suddenly the end of time will be. Second Peter 3, and the verse is verse 10. I don't understand people. So many people try to predate the second coming of Jesus. They do it over and over again. And no one knows when the hour will be. Just because I don't know when the hour will be, does not mean it won't be. It's going to happen. I just don't know when it's going to happen. Now, I've tried to give brief exposition with regard to this wonderful passage in Second Peter chapter 3. And I looked at the first seven verses in that matter. And I've considered the passage with you. But here's the real thought in my mind tonight. How can I be ready for this? I can talk about the second coming of the Lord. I can talk about how factual it's going to be, how God has made His promises, how God always fulfills His promise. <clears throat> but the real point for me is I'm ready. Am I ready for this? For this great event that takes place. And as I thought about this from the standpoint of the Scriptures... It seems to me we're going to find ourselves in one of three phases tonight. And I want to explain what those phases are. And let me give brief explanation of them. Then I'll spend a little time analyzing each one. Some of us are in the deciding phase. 
we haven't really decided what to do about this. We've heard about it. We've read it from the Scriptures tonight. But we really haven't made any commitment regarding the matter of the second coming. It could be you don't know how to make a commitment. And I certainly want to help you with that tonight. But then I suspect that most of us are in that second phase with regard to the second coming of tonight, second coming of Christ we're studying tonight. And that's the preparation phase. We're preparing for it. We're getting ready for it. But then there may be some of us who have actually grown in faith to the anticipation phase, where now we look and we can think about, Lord, come, Maranatha. I prepared myself. I'm ready for your coming. And I don't have a worry in the world about that. I don't know where you find yourself, whether it's the deciding phase, the preparing phase, or the anticipation phase. But we're going to find ourselves in one aspect of this somewhere in this continuum with regard to how to get ready for the second coming of the Lord. Perhaps I can help with some of that and help you in the phase that you happen to be in. The first phase is the deciding phase. In this deciding phase, we have just a little window of opportunity. And it's sort of like Noah. When Noah went out preaching and people were listening to him and he was building the ark, he was trying to tell them of the destruction that God was going to bring upon the earth. And there was a little window there whereby God in his mercy and kindness was giving men the opportunity to respond to him properly. And that's where we are. We have a little window of opportunity to respond properly to God. And we have to decide for ourselves, will I serve Him? Or will I just live life for myself? Will I submit to Him and His will for my life? Or will I just decide whatever I want to do is what I'm going to do? I'm the master and no one else. We have freedom to choose here. And I think that's what he's getting at in Second Peter chapter 3, and the point is verse 9. Now, I read through that. I read through it hurriedly, but I want to spend a moment with it now, because here, this is referencing the matter of you need to make a choice. You need to decide tonight about this matter. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness. God's going to fulfill that promise. That promise that Christ is coming again to judge the world and destroy the world, all those who are unfaithful, all those who are disobedient, and their refusal to obey the gospel of Christ, that promise is going to happen. And he's not slow in that it's hard for him to make it happen, or he's forgotten about it, or he's going to let everybody slide. He has a reason for delaying his coming. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. And he's trying to say, God wants this relationship with you. Decide for God. Decide that you will be with Him. 
and be obedient to Him. He's being patient toward you. And you might have a translation that uses the word long-suffering. God is long-suffering toward you. <coughs> he wants this relationship with you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's His desire for the entire world. It's not His desire just for the elect and the select few. It is His desire that all men everywhere come to repentance and become obedient to Him by faithful gospel obedience. And He tarries His coming purposefully so that other souls may have an opportunity, first of all, to decide. We've got a brief window here. And Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9 emphasizes the point. But as you see, I made reference to Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2 also makes reference to this particular matter, and it talks about the goodness and the mercy of God, and I'd like to spend just a brief moment talking about that as well. It begins at about verse 4, and it continues on through verse 11. Though I won't read all of that particular discussion, though it's well worth our time and effort, the point about Romans chapter 2 is simply the fact that the Jews are guilty and need a Savior like the Gentiles. They're guilty and need a Savior, chapter 1. The Jews are guilty and they need a Savior as well. And the things that they accuse the Gentiles of doing, they're guilty of doing it as well. And they had this pompous pride about them. They were so much better than the Gentile world because look how sinful the Gentiles are. But Paul is very plain when he says, you're guilty as well. Now we come to verse 4. Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? He's patient and He's graceful. He's long-suffering because He wants us to turn it around. He wants us to make that choice. And some are in that deciding phase. They really haven't decided one way or the other Will I follow God or not? And Paul and Bible writers in these Bible passages and Peter as we're studying tonight are emphasizing the fact you need to go ahead and make your choice. You need to go ahead and make your choice to follow Christ and be obedient to the gospel of Christ and repent of your sins and confess your faith in Christ. Be baptized into Christ for the remission of sins. You need to do this. You need to decide this because you've got a little window right here. Life is short and very uncertain, for we know not what will be on the morrow. For what is your life? It is but a vapor that appeareth for a little time and then vanishes away. We do not know what will happen to us tomorrow. We've got a little window here to make that decision, and some are in that deciding phase. How can I get ready for the second coming that you and I have been studying about tonight? I need to make a decision. And that decision is to obey the gospel of Christ. You need to do it tonight. There are some, though, that are in what I would call the preparing phase. And they're preparing their life for eternity. And I think Peter references this matter for us, Second Peter chapter 3. And I've made mention of these verses for us, verse 11 and also verse 12. In those particular passages, he makes the following points. 
since all these things are thus to be dissolved. And what he makes mention of there is the destruction of the world. God's going to destroy the world by fire. Since all this is going to happen, all these wonderful things that we've built and all these wonderful things that we've accumulated and that God wants, to us, wants us to enjoy with the proper attitude and frame of heart, all is going to be gone. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Verse 11. That's the preparation phase. He's asking, what sort of people are we to be? What kind of lives are we living? Yes, I made a decision. I'm going to follow Christ. And I made a decision. I want to prepare myself for eternity. Well, what kind of person require, is required for that? Waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved. And the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. It's a powerful passage that emphasizes the importance of the need for you and me to be preparing ourselves for eternity. Now, you and I know, who have been members of the church for any period of time, you and I know this kind of preparation doesn't just happen overnight. It's going to take a lifetime for us to really prepare ourselves for the end of time. We're going to be working on this and working on this. We're going to be a part of the church of God. We're going to be fulfilling the will of God. We're going to be doing the will of Christ. And all of this is not done in one day. It is something that we set our heart on, and it's something that we set our mind on, and we're devoting ourselves to this. The big question is, will I be ready when Christ comes again? The big question is going to be, have I been busy enough with regard to my preparation that I'm now ready for that great day which is about to be taking place? And that's the point that he's making reference here in the passage that I just read. What sort of person ought we to be? And the Bible over and over again in various passages and any pa number of passages come to mind discuss the kind of lives we should be living and tells us what we should not be doing. And it lists the sins that we should eliminate from our life. And it tells us the things that we should be doing and adding to our life. For example, in Galatians chapter 5, every Christian should be adding the fruits of the Spirit to their life. And every Christian should be avoiding the works of the flesh. And he compares the two. Every Christian should be doing this. Every Christian should be avoiding that. And that happens over and over again in the pages of the Bible. And what he's doing there, he's helping us with the preparation phase. And he's trying to get us to know and understand what it's going to take. The kind of person I need to be in order to so prepare myself for the end of time. But then there's another the anticipation phase. The anticipation phase, when a person reaches such faith, they don't have any worries. They realize they've made adequate, proper preparation as far as they possibly can do it. They're constantly working at it. It's not just something that you work on today and you've got the job done. It's something that you're continually living your life and preparing yourself for that.
but there reaches a phase in life and a level of maturity in faith whereby a person says, Maranatha, Lord, come. I'm ready to be with you. I've made the decision. I've prepared my life. I'm ready to go to heaven. I want to live as long as I possibly can in this particular life. I want to do as much as I possibly can for the Lord. But now I look forward to His coming. I have children. I have grandchildren. We have family. We have relations. We have all kinds of activities which we've accomplished. But now in my phase of life and my maturity of Christianity and my growth in faith, I'm prepared for the Lord to come. That I can actually say, when I die, I'm going to heaven. And I'm not going to allow anything to interfere with that anticipatory joy of being with the Lord. That I leave this particular life. And now I'm with the redeemed of all ages. And in the arms of a loving Savior. Can we reach that level of spiritual maturity whereby we say, Lord, come. I'm ready. And the question is, so are you prepared? You and I have studied about this matter of the Lord's second coming. I approached it from the standpoint of one of the great promises of God, which we know that God always fulfills His promises. But where am I on this continuum? Am I the kind of person who's still trying to make up my mind? Then you better make it up. Make up your mind. Am I in that phase of preparation? Well, let's see. Let's think about it for a minute. If the Lord were to come tonight, hypothetically speaking, and you knew it, what would you do? Or maybe we'll ask it this way. If I knew that the Lord was going to come tomorrow, or if I knew the Lord was going to come next week, what would I be doing? Is there anything that I need to take care of? If so, you're still in the preparation phase. If so, you're still working to correct things, to make things right, to do things the right way, according to the divine will of God, as much as one possibly can, with our obedient faith and God's wonderful grace. What would you change? What would you do? Would you go to somebody and make things right? Would you change certain things that you do? Would you change certain ways that you say things? Would you change certain ways that you treat people? What would you do? If there are things that you would be doing differently, if you knew, hypothetically speaking, that Jesus was going to come tomorrow, would you change something that you are doing? Or would you go about doing something correcting something that needs to be done. If so, you're in the preparation phase. And you need to get that done. By all means, get it done. 
But right now we have a narrow window that's open for us to freely choose to obey God and do the will of God. Let us take advantage of the window that we have, the freedom and the choice that we have, to so prepare ourselves so that we can reach the phase of anticipation and say within our heart <clears throat> as objectively as we can say, Lord, come. I'm ready. If today were the last day, what would you do? The thing about it is, I don't know. Today could be the last day. Today could be the last day of your life. Today could be the last day for any of us. And the Lord comes just as God promised that He would. What would you do? Do it. Do it now. Make proper preparation for the promise of God and the Lord's coming. For some, that will mean Repenting of sin and confessing faith in Jesus Christ and being baptized into Christ for the remission of sins. For some, that will mean repentance and rededication of life. Galatians chapter 6, verse 1 and 2. I've been unfaithful, but now I want to be faithful. I want to prepare. I want to spend the rest of my time in preparation. And I want to get to that point where I'm at the phase of anticipation I look forward to the second coming of the Lord because I'm ready. Whatever needs to be done tonight, I urge you to do it because there's a great day coming when Jesus Christ will come. And that great archangel would put one foot on the land and one foot on the sea and will shout, Behold, he cometh. Will you be ready? Won't you come? While together we stand and while we sing.